Uh, Wednesday, I was uh, doing my devotions as I do daily, and I read 1 Corinthians 13. And as you know, if you've been around the church for any period of time, it's about love. And um, I read, obviously, right at the end of the passage where it speaks about faith, hope, and love. And I just thought, as I went out praying in the back bay, I bumped into Olivia, wherever you are over there, and we had a chat, and I realized that actually that trilogy of ideas so reflects COVID and what it's been. The initial shock of COVID coming from Wuhan, if it did, and um, then the surprise of the impact that it had on us required faith. And each one of us had to dig deep. Do I really believe God is who He said He is? Well, this pandemic rages over the nation. And we had to find out what we really believed or didn't believe. Then we suffered the reality of loneliness, loss of community, and the sheer mental anguish that that brought. Um, I remember um, one of our gals arriving at our house, she had to get something from Merrill, and stood in her kind of nurse's medical uniform, put her hands on her hip, and she said, Chris, we have to get together. We have to meet. I can't stand this anymore. And so we went into a parking lot and had fun at the parking lot. wasn't quite temple courts, but we, we, we met and we had loads of fun there. So it was faith that had to anchor us. Do I really believe what I believe? Love, the power of community. Tragically, many have never come back around the world. When I meet with pastors, as I do from around the world, there are those who have, in the craziness of the pandemic, drifted off into isolated loneliness, not pushing back into community. If you're one of those, maybe, maybe God has a little whisper in your ear tonight. And then thirdly, which I think represents 2022, is hope. I do think that God is wanting to instill a deep hope in our hearts once more. Not a, I'm an optimist. I'm obligated to optimism. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a deep hope that actually resonates from my inner belly, that God is sovereign, God is in control, God is doing some amazing things even in these difficult times. I actually am reading, my bedside reading before I go to bed is a big book on Jerusalem, uh, written by a, a secular Jew as best as I can. I found it in a thrift store. And uh, I, it's massive. It's in about 1,500 years of history. I'm a history nerd, so I'm loving it. But I'm astounded by the fact that I wonder over the millennia how many people who occupied, whether it's the Ottomans or the Turks or the British or the Jews or the Palestinians or the Arabs or whoever, must have wondered in their short life of, let's say, 80 years, what is all this about? Uh, Jean-Francois Lutard, who is one of the major voices in post-modernity, said one of the um, identifying factors of post-modernity, and I quote, is I define post-modernism, he says, as the incredulity, incredulity towards meta-narratives. I have struggled to say that quietly, in my head, out loud. But basically, post-modernity says there is no big story. We're just a random collective collection of individuals. We have moments in life and then we die. We really are the products of chaos. And the, you, you may think to yourself, well, I don't really believe that. But, but if you live a lonely, isolated, disconnected life, you do. You might not take post-modernity to its logical conclusion and its very end. But if you buy into a highly selfish, self-absorbed lifestyle in which moment to moment you live and you live that way, you've bought into post-modernity as a philosophy. Now, the history of Habakkuk, which is what we're going to spend through until Easter looking at. We know, and I'm sure you know that, round about that time, Israel had fractured. There were ten tribes that were the northern kingdom, that were in exile. There were two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, who were the southern uh, tribes and who began to grow into Judah itself. The Assyrian Empire was beginning to decline. How many of you know every empire, including this one, will decline? I know Christian nationalism in America wants us to believe that we are God's chosen nation. Obviously, we're not. 
Obviously, we have blessing from God on it, like Germany did during the Reformation, like England did during uh, the Wesleyan move in, in kind of post-industrial England. We live in the favor of God, but we're not God's nation. That's a huge error, which we'll get onto uh, in a couple of weeks' time. And there is the emergence, and again, forgive my little history nerding, but there is the emergence of this little city of, of Babel, which becomes Babylon, that will become a superpower. There are dynamics happening. So when we look two weeks' time, God says, lift your head, look at the nations, look at what I'm doing. I want to invite you to do similarly. Don't sit for hours on TikTok. That feeds into post-modernity. Look at different newspapers around the world. Look at the nations and see what I am doing is the invitation that God gives us through this prophet. There are 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. That doesn't mean they have less importance. It just means the books are shorter. This is three chapters, super, super short. And overwhelmingly, it's about the dialogue between the prophet and God, which is very strange because most prophetic voices are a word from God for the people. This one, Habakkuk or Habakkuk, is from the people to God. Now, I want to spend 19 minutes, Tyler, and I want to look at three words in chapter 1. So I think there's a slide with my verses on. From the Amplified, uh, from the NIV, and so on. And it essentially reads, that's why I'm not asking you to go there. It's a little book that you struggle to find sometimes. It says, the oracle, the Amplified, does a burdensome message, a pronouncement from God, which Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. Okay, there it is behind me. Or says another translation, an urgent message. The prophet is under compulsion to proclaim. A third old American edition, 1899, says the burden that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. Isn't that interesting? A burden he saw. How do you see a burden? And then the Living Bible, which is from the 70s, I think, this is the message that came to the prophet Habakkuk in a vision from God. So what's the first, the, the, the three words I want to look at quite simply is burden or oracle, Habakkuk himself, and then Saul. What did he see? The word oracle is a very beautiful word. It comes from the Hebrew masa, M-A-S-S-A. -S -S I forgot which slides I sent through. But here is what masa means, dear, dear friends. It means a load, a bearing, a tribute, a burden. So the modern translations, the NIV speaks about this is the message that God gave Habakkuk. Habakkuk saw it. But that's way too trivializing a big, big word. It's lifting, uplifting, that to which the soul lifts itself up. Bearing or carrying. Now what does all of that mean? Every Christian, I believe, has a masa, has a message, has a burden. Not to put anyone in a box, let me illustrate. Sam is passionate, wherever Sam is, about the unhoused. You find Sam and you engage her and the unhoused will come leaking out of her. Meryl, it's the broken. Caleb is the same, going off to grad school. It's about broken people. See, there is a, a masa that lies with that thing. When I was 18, God called me through Jeremiah chapter 1 from about verse 3 to about verse 20. And part of it said, you will uproot and tear down, you will plant and you will build. Now folks, I have to tell you, I've been preaching for over 40 years and that happens all the time. I can preach on love, and people get angry with me. And I will like, please just like me. But you see, my masa is to uproot all the things in our hearts and lives that get in the way, that disrupt the weeds, that, 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 that grow over the essential life of God. And so when I speak or lead, whether it's in casual conversations or formally, I can't help myself. Even when I do it in the nicest possible way, I'm uprooting, I'm tearing down, I'm planting, or I'm building. That's my masa. Now, the beauty that we see here is two ideas 
that juxtapose each other. The one is a burden and a weight. The other, what is uplifting or lifting higher. Now stay with me. And masa means that there are some things that just weigh you down. That is a God-defined bearing. You can't help yourself. And generally, it's very painful and very difficult to live with. The Hebrew uh, scholar and rabbi, Abram Herschel, said this of Habakkuk. A started and tormented man is Habakkuk. He is distressed at the fact that violence prevails and agonizes by the thought that God tolerates evil. I continue. The message represents another assault upon Habakkuk's understanding of God, adding mystery to amazement. I'm not done. One more quote. He, Habakkuk, faces God to sense the living God is to sense infinite wisdom, infinite beauty, and such sensation is the sensation of joy. Now, you can't remember all of that, even though it's on the screen behind me. Let me illustrate. Part of your masa is a burden. You know this kind of postmodern idea, or, or certainly American Southern California, that my life is all about happiness and fulfillment and uh, peace. It isn't. It isn't. Th that's got nothing to do with it. What it is all about is your masa. And sometimes that will weigh on you, and you will try everything to rip it off you. I don't know if you've ever fallen into the river or the ocean with your clothes on. And what you want to do is just get your clothes off because they're dragging you under. And part of it, whether you like it or not, is that whatever it is that's on you will feel like this burden. Oh God, can you take this from me? I don't want it. I don't like it. It feels too much to bear. But then it lifts you up. When you do it, you are most fully alive. You are most fully human. I feel like this is what I'm on this planet to do. We have a friend. She was uh, one of my staff in South Africa. And she started a preschool in South Africa. This little multicultural preschool at a time when apartheid was still raging. And Sandy would sometimes sit in my office weeping, just saying, Chris, this is too hard. I said, well, do you want to give it up? No, I can't, I can't, I can't. But it's too hard. And then when that got up and running, she went to Mongolia. In Ulaanbaatar, which is the capital, I believe, she started this little preschool. The president of Mongolia was driving past one day, saw this, stopped and looked, met with her, and he made an edict that all preschools in Mongolia are to be like this. See, that's her masa. She can't help herself because she has to work with little kids of all racial groups and ethnicities, even though that is brutally hard. You and I will want to throw our coat off when our masa gets too heavy to bear. But you will never feel as fully alive. I know sometimes, and I hope Meryl doesn't mind me using her as an example, where she will have eight clients on the trot, starting at 8 o'clock, just boom, boom, no break, no lunch, just one hour uh, finishes. Uh, now that she's Zooming at home, I'll knock on the door and give her a smoothie, and she'll run to the door in our little guest room, that's her place, and she'll grab the smoothie as the next client zooms up. Oh, babe, I don't know if I have it in me today. Eight people whose pain I cannot bear. At the end of the night, we'll sit and I've cooked dinner, how was it, babe? This is why I'm fully alive. Burden, uplifting. Now, many of people just try and run away from it. You can't. Nothing will satisfy. Nothing will fulfill. Just like that. And learning to live with our masa, as Habakkuk did. One, one author said, Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. Habakkuk was the bleeding prophet. It's learning to live with your oracle, whatever that might be. Are you with me? Don't try and run away from it. Like Jonah, you'll come back. It's just how this works. It will weigh you down. 
and it will lift you up. You will feel it's an, a burden you cannot bear, and this is why I'm alive. This is why I do what I do. Are you with me? Hey, listen, let me be brutally honest with you. There are times I don't want to be leading a church. I'm 64 in a few months' time. I've got friends who are, and one of our friends yesterday is two years older than me. I said, hey, Bruce, what are you up to, man? He's worked with all the surfing labels. He's a clothing guy. And he said, I'm in semi-retirement. I thought, you bastard. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you're in semi-retirement. Yeah, I go to Pilates in the morning, and then I come home, and I read the, all the, the papers online, and I get in touch with some of my Chinese uh, suppliers, and, oh, that sounds so good, until I stand in front of you. Oh, absolutely. Until I see you, until I stand in front of you, until I sit with you and have a coffee with you, and I listen to Paul's story, and Ben drives me crazy, then I know I am fully alive. Are you with me? Whatever it is God seated you with is the thing that will weigh you down as an unbearable burden and lift you up that will make you fully human and fully alive. Are you with me? All right, good. Number two, moving on. Understanding Habakkuk. What can we understand from him? Well, his name means to embrace or to cling to. It's a beautiful word. In fact, it goes as far as to say one author says that in 2 Kings 4-5, now this is completely irrelevant, but I loved it as a piece of possible Jewish gossip. 2 Kings 4-5, Elisha the prophet sees a Shulamite woman, and she begs him. She says, I don't have a child. Can you do anything and uh, Elisha says, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway and he said to her, at the season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. Isn't that incredible? See, I love that, even if that's not true. I mean, how do we know if it's true or not? And she said, no, 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 my Lord, no, no, a man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived and bore a son about that time the following spring as Elisha said to her. It's possible that he was the fulfillment of a barren woman's womb that a prophetic word spoke life into, and so she called him by that name, Habakkuk. But I think his name means something else also. I think it's an invitation to embrace or cling to Jesus. I think so. There's no way we can carry our masa, the burden or the upliftment, in our human faculties. This afternoon I was tired. I'm, I'm just forgive me for using a couple of really honest examples. And I lay on the couch. Meryl gave me a great lunch. And um, I like turning on something, a talk or something, and then I doze. And I was kind of coming out there and uh, was starting to wake up. I thought, oh. Do I have to go and preach tonight? You know what I mean? Just that humanness. Just the, 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 and then let me be a little more honest. So I start reading my material and I think, this is so boring. <laughs> I, this is so boring. Who's going who's to benefit from, you know what I mean? All the human things, the human doubting and the loss of confidence and just feeling Sunday afternoon, who wants to go out Sunday night? Because that's our human faculties. And that means there is an invitation for us to come to the throne of grace. Because what matters is who I am in Christ. Now, stay with me for just a moment on this point. The sense of identity is essential to this conversation. You know, as millennials, the, the, the talk is much about authenticity, isn't it? I want to be authentic. I want to be true to myself. I love Googling business uh, platforms and what they talk about the millennial workforce and every one of them will say something like millennials want to be true to themselves what the hell does that mean i mean what does it mean does it mean you want to be true to yourself when you were 12 insecure and junior high and and, and you had pimples and you were you know everyone was talking about you and they rejected you and bullied you is that the you you want to be true to or do you want to be true to you now well, this is who I am now. I don't want to be true to my 22-year-old self. I'm 63 now. Never want to be 22. I grew up in a broken home. So how did I overcome that brokenness? I was loud. I was aggressive. I was optimistic. And I bullied anyone verbally who got in my way through humor. I don't want to be that guy. 
So who do you want to be true to? I think the true authenticity is not who I was, not even who I am, but who I will become. That's true biblical authenticity, dear, dear friends. Remember Gideon, two examples quickly. One old, one new. Gideon, when the angel visits with him, he's in a wine press. And the angel declares over him, oh mighty warrior. And he says, who are you talking to? I'm, I'm the weakest. I'm the least. I'm in a wine press. I'm hiding from my enemies. See, he's being true to himself. He's being fully authentic, describing who he is. But the angel's authenticity is not the human definition, but the divine intention. Oh, you're going to be a mighty warrior. And I think sometimes being true to ourselves is forgetting the worldly definitions of trueness and letting the beauty wonder and wait of who I'm becoming in him to be my true authenticity. Peter, think about him for a moment. The great, passionate, emotional, irrational, moody, Jesus-denying Peter. Who was he at this time? He was the reed. Well, I'm going to be true to myself. I'm going to be irrational, I'm going to be emotional, and I'm going to be moody, and that's who I am. Or, I'm going to make you a rock, son. It's going to be a hard journey, but I'm going to make you a rock. See, folks, biblical authenticity and human authenticity are simply not the same thing. And if we're going to have a year of hope, it's moving our mindset from, I want to be true to me, to I want to be true to who God is making me. And that is vastly different. True biblical authenticity is not who I was, not who I am, but who I am becoming. That is not uh, light-weighted optimism. It's an inner conviction who I am in Christ. And I think this is an introduction toward that end. Can you be true to this self. Now, en route is going to be some undoing. En route, God has to strip the onion layer upon layer. Your family of origin and your brokenness and your vulnerability, all of that stuff. But who Gideon had to stand on is, I think. Imagine, forgive me, because I preach with my imagination. Imagine Gideon standing in front of a mirror and saying, Mighty, I am... Uh, my mighty warrior. Oh, the devil says to hell you are. You're not. Look at you. You're a sucker. You're a weakling. You're a wuss. What do you think you are? Be true to yourself. I. Can you imagine that unfolding? Little by little, he grows into the reality of who God said he would become and led the people of Israel in victorious combat. Who? are you? What does it mean to be true to yourself? Is it, I hope, who you are becoming and not who you have been? Thirdly, this whole idea of the burden or the message, the oracle. Isn't it interesting that God says, Habakkuk, I want you to see it. I think it's seeing it with his imagination. And Habakkuk starts by seeing it. God, why do you cope with violence and injustice and things we look at in two weeks' time? See, he's seeing, and then, and then God says, now hang on a second, Habakkuk, look at the nations. I need you to see differently. There is something else out there. Thomas Aquinas, the great mystic old antiquity writer, speaks about Adam and Eve being in a perfect living community with God. And their sin is strange that, and I love this, they lost divine connection. Adam and Eve sabotaged our natural human destiny. This disordering of our natural destiny caused us to lose our natural sense of God. Here it comes. As a result, we no longer seek Him. Ladies and gentlemen, that's part of the invitation. Not just the oracle, understanding burden and uplifting. Not just embracing and clinging to Jesus and what I am becoming. But there is this invitation to do what Adam and Eve did so easily, they sought the Lord. Psalm 105 says, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that He has done, His miracles 
and the judgments he uttered. Seek the Lord. I have a whole lot of texts around that, but I cannot do that. And Tyler, you have one. I want to quickly land with this. And landing means a couple of minutes. But I want to give you ten ways I've seen God speak. But are you willing to seek? Audible voice. An audible voice. He did it to Paul, one of our closest friends, Debbie Jones. She worked for Aramis, one of the cosmetic companies, and she was away on a business trip in a hotel, and God spoke to her audibly. She sought him. The second is the text. We always translate what we are hearing through this. Please don't tell me, and you're too young of a congregation for the illustration that comes to mind. No, but God told me to divorce my wife and marry my secretary, and I've got three others who confirm it. No, sir, that was not the Lord. Rebuke him. Do not get divorced. It's one of the only things that God hates. Unless there is adultery. Thirdly, the inner audible voice, that still quiet voice that the prophet saw when he stood at the cave. Dreams, visions, laying a fleece out just like Gideon did, number six. When leaders speak, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, took over and he went to the leaders and he said, what do you think I should do? And they gave him great counsel. He went to his buddies, what do you think I should do? They gave him sucky counseling. And we know the rest of the story. He listened to the voice of his peers, rather than the prophetic voice of his leaders. Eight, obviously the prophets themselves. When the gift of or the people of prophecy uh, speak. Number nine, do unless God says don't. And number ten, wisdom. Now obviously that's a whole series. But what my invitation to you is, seek him. He can be found. He can be heard. You can know his voice. I can't tell you how often in the morning I write on the left-hand side of my journal things I'm seeking the Lord on and how often as I open up the scripture, it's an exact answer to that. The text revealing an answer to my question. Can that be what the series is about? Where I come to settle my burden and uplifting? Where I... Embrace the invitation to Jesus. And then when I position myself to hear him. Habakkuk, see. See with your imagination. See with your mind. See with your heart. See with your spirit. See, Habakkuk. It's just too important a time. Now, thank you. I didn't do too badly. 27 minutes. I didn't do too badly. What we said is we're going to give about 15 minutes, if there are, questions related to this topic. We're going to take the roving mic around, which is there, Tyler. And uh, if you have any questions, just to be creative and fun and not to be so formal, if you have a question related to what we're speaking about, that you would like me just to kind of answer briefly, and everyone knows I answer very briefly. Who has a question? Who's bold enough to be a question person? Yes, sir. Hi, my name is Johnny. Um, Hello, Johnny. I'm, my first time here, so you may have gone more in depth on it before, but that, you know, on number six, I loved all those 10 points. Yes. Number six was laying a fleece out. Um, I was a little unsure about what that was, so if, I would really appreciate you. Okay, thank that. you, Johnny. Great question. So have a, uh, a Gideon hears the angel speak to him, and he doesn't want to believe it, so he tries a number of reasons to, for it not to happen. And one of them, he takes a fleece and he lays it down. Help me, Dan, if I butcher the story. Uh, sheepskin and he lays it down and he says basically Lord does it dry or wet the first time okay so basically on two occasions when the ground was wet with dew he asked for the fleece to be dry so it was going against the grain of nature he said Lord I need you to speak to me in a way that is contrary to the natural world around me let something happen that that shouldn't have been and he does it twice to make sure that what he has heard, mighty warrior, is actually what he will become. As you can imagine, his confidence is down. He's the youngest in the family. No one really believes in him. He doesn't believe in himself. And now the angel calls him something he possibly can possibly not be. Does that help? Yeah. 
Thanks, Johnny. Welcome. Great to see you, buddy. Who else got a question related to tonight's material? Sorry, Austin. Thank you. Hi, I'm, I'm Austin. Um, so there's a, an idea in psychology today that, you know, depression lives in the past, anxiety lives in the future. So therefore, we should focus to be in the present. Um, how would you, like, you know, consolidate that with the idea of looking towards what God is making me? Or, like, yeah. how can I seek towards who I'm becoming without yeah. letting anxiety prevail? Yeah, thank you. Dang, that's a good question. Meryl, do you want to answer it? Meryl! I, I think the first thing I would say, Austin, and there are a few things that do come to mind. I think the first thing is the assumption that anxiety is bad. And that when I'm anxious, I sin. Now, the Bible does say, do not be anxious. But, but here's the thesis. I think anxiety, th there's a good anxiety and a bad anxiety, or a godly anxiety and a human anxiety. I think a godly anxiety stirs me up to step beyond the realms of knowing. Can you imagine Peter standing on the edge of the boat, and he's not anxious that the storm waves are crashing, and he's got to get out of the boat and walk on the water. That he's not a little bit anxious. When I watch these free climbers, and I do it, and I punish myself because I hate heights, I cannot even watch it on TV. Never mind go and look at the live thing. But there is this anxiety, but anxiety that stirs me to adventure. And here's my, my tension. I think, one, we need to shift our thinking about anxiety and let anxiety be an empowering traveling companion. Let it be a friend. Let it nudge me forward rather than paralyze me. Depression paralyzes me. The darkness. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a depressive person, but I can only imagine what depressive people go through. And again, love, if you want to speak into that, you, you obviously must welcome. But I think anxiety has been given a poor rap because it's like... The antithesis of it. Remember Jesus on the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was anxious, dude. He said, Father, if it's possible, would you take this from me? I mean, I don't know what that is. You don't want to call that anxiety. Call it something else, but it's pretty real. And it's wrestling, Austin, with the reality that what God's invited me into is bigger than I am. And if I view that, anxiety is an invitation to live a life that's bigger than I am. It's a friend to faith. When I let anxiety paralyze me, I can't do that. I shouldn't be here. I think it's an enemy. And I think we live in the tension between depression, which is completely debilitating, and anxiety, which can be a trigger towards a life of faith. If we see anxiety as exclusively negative, it will never be a friend. But if it can be a point, a launching point, like those free climbers, it's a launching point that gets me up the cliff face it's a friend. I don't know if that's it's the best answer I've got right now. Do you want to add anything, my love? So those of you who don't know the microphones there, Meryl's a, a therapist. So here we have the right answer. Oh, I'd be happier sitting down. But, you know, I think the important thing in, in tonight's kind of context is when we look back and we look at our past, I, I don't think there's a person in this room who <clears throat> doesn't look at the past and feel some element of shame or regret, guilt, guilt you know. So <clears throat> that's what happens when we look in the past. When we look into the future, often we look into it with the what-if questions. What's going to happen? What's next? What's going to be, you know, what if I do that? What will happen then? And we start down that road of anxiety. And I think the thing that I'm learning to do because... I think Chris is right. I think there is an element of anxiety in all of us about, you know, the future. But I think what I'm learning to do is to look up, you know. So don't look back. Don't look forward. Look up and really be with God, listening to his voice on a daily basis. One of the scriptures I absolutely love, gosh, I think it's Philippians. I've got my own version of it. That's what I'm trying to remember. My, my version of it says this, grace for today, I think it's Philippians 3, where it speaks about you're going to have enough strength for today. And I think sometimes when we get into that, trying to hear God for the future, we get too anxious about it instead of grace for today. Lord, may my, my steps today be the steps of a righteous woman. May I today be walking in your ways. May I today be 
obedient and hearing your voice and doing what you're telling me. Wonderful, my love. Thank you. Thank you. Hope that's helpful. I think it is. Next question. Ty, are you asking a question or you want the mic? I'm asking a question. Um, so I would love, as a community who really longs to seek the prophetic and handle it responsibly, yeah. um, I also kind of wonder how we weigh the reality of like charismatic chaos when there are prophetic words spoken on behalf of God that clearly aren't. Yeah. And it's in good intention. It's we want to build up, but oftentimes it kind of imposes our will yes. on you know, something we're feeling. What's the difference between that and kind of handling the gift of the prophetic well in our community with one another? Great. That is a bigger answer, but let me say this. Two things come to mind immediately. Number one is community. If you look at the Old Covenant, there was a thing called the School of the Prophets. And generally the prophets either traveled in school or they went out from the school and prophesied, and then they came back. In the New Covenant, the New Testament, invariably the prophet is associated with an apostle. In other words, there's partnership with a complementary gift. I think where much of the charismatic chaos does come from is independent autonomous prophets who've got their own ministry, their own website, raise their own funds, and therefore everyone assumes that they are right. And I think it's danger, danger, danger. No one is right all of the time. No one. I don't care how accurate they are. Number two, we prophesy in part. We never prophesy everything. And so when we create this image that I'm always right, and that what I say is everything, we create a distorted impression of what God has done. And many people have. They've gotten, God's told me you must marry Meryl. Okay, so I go and marry Meryl. But I don't know when or how or what needs to happen. And so it's the prophesying in part, plus the unaccountability, that have been two of the most dangerous pieces that have produced an incredible amount of chaos. Honestly, 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 when I look at a prophet, no matter how accurate and amazing they are, I look over their shoulder and I look, number one, are they in a community and accountable, real community? I mean, where their prophetic words, you know what... Um, those, can I just be honest here, and I'm not fighting with anyone? The number of prophets who said Trump was going to win the last election, only one got up and repented that he was wrong. Only one of all the, that I'm aware of, of all the mainline prophets who prophesied that, only one got up, Chris Vallotton from Bethel, and said, I'm sorry, I was wrong. It's that humility. Not I'm always right. It's that humility that God can use because we can be wrong. And in community, we, we, we provide the love, protection, and accountability of prophets that give the freedom to give it. Number three, Ty, is that most prophecies need to be incubated. Very few weighty, substantial prophecies come in, the, in a fleeting moment. It comes when people are groaning before God, waiting on God, resting, I don't want to give this, this is too hard, or whatever it might be, and letting God, the Holy Spirit, incubate it and bring more clarity to it. Then present it to others who are recognized prophetic voices and then, and then give them. And then I haven't even started with how to receive a prophecy and to, to manage it. We will look at that because our book's a minor prophet, but that's a great question. Now, for those of you who have not been exposed to a charismatic type story, charismatic charismata means the gifts, uh, the, Holy gift, the, the Holy Spirit gives gifts to His church. I want to say to you, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of them. They are incredible moments of sovereign encounter where God speaks in a very, very unique way and really captures our attention. It's a most beautiful thing. Don't let excesses or exaggerations or mythological stories about someone somewhere said something distract you or create a caution about the prophetic. It is a beautiful, beautiful gift. It's the Holy Spirit at work in a very fragile human being. Those of you who've had excess, who've seen it happen, You've seen people just prophesy the most incredible junk. Let God heal that memory. Let God heal it. Normally, if I have a prophetic word and I'm not a prophet, I will make sure that there's someone else there to whom I am accountable. Someone can't come back, you prophesied. No, I didn't. I didn't say that. There's someone at Merrill or someone who is there so that I'm held accountable to what I have said. Are you with me? And it doesn't have to be your spouse, it can be another prophetic voice. 
But um, I really, part of this series is to stir up to talk about. Susie is very recognized with a great track record of, of a prophetic ministry. And so in a few weeks' time, she's going to come up and talk about her journey. And then we're going to do some panel conversations around the gifts. Because we need to understand them better in a biblically accurate, humanly sane, and yet supernaturally present way of doing this great thing. We don't want to just repeat the rhythms and ritual of Sunday gatherings or midweek. We want to see where the fingerprint of God leans into the moment that we say, oh, that's what God wanted to do tonight. We got it. Great question. One more. Two more. Hey, how's it going? Hi. Um, thankful that you shared the different sides of the message. The Thank burden. you. Sorry, what is your name? My name is Elvis. Elvis. Hey, how's it going? I'm so glad you're here. Uh, the weight of the message, the burden, and the uplifting part when you obey it. And I'm also glad you shared about Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, and the bleeding prophet, Habakkuk. Yeah. My pastor shared on Habakkuk last year. Oh, and, amazing. And I'm just curious to know, I, I don't want to jump ahead, but yes. in Habakkuk 2, 2, it talks about taking a vision and writing on a tablet yes. and giving it to the herald and running with it. Just curious to know some experience that you've had where yes. you've seen that gone wrong and done right. Yes. Gee, that's a great question. And a complicated one, Susie, isn't it? Thank you. Great question. Um, well, the first thing we have to do is look at it in its historical context. Because that was written at a particular time. And Habakkuk had to write down the things that he saw that God spoke to him for Judah at that time with the Babylonians coming. And so before we run too quickly for personal application, we'd give it its contextual accuracy, and say, which we will in a few weeks' time, and say that's what it was, that's what it meant, and that's how it's applied. Now, is it still relevant to us today? 100%. God gives us bits and pieces of our future, both individually and communally and nationally, I believe, enough to keep us leaning forward with faith and hope. And so for us to be able to write down what we know, incubate it, that's the waiting part. And so few prophets or prophetic gifts or prophetic messages we have, we are able to wait. I mean, I think of Meryl and I, for whatever reason, pray for couples who can't have babies, and many of them have. But the reality is from the time we pray till the time they have the kid is at best, nine months. Even if they go home, make love that night, and have a kid, they're still going to be, but wait. Though it linger, write it down, it's coming. And I think there is an, a very practical um, application for us, which is write down what you feel God has said. Um, let it incubate. Let God bring greater clarity. Let there be chlorine in the water. Let God tell what is what he is saying and what he's not saying, and then watch him fulfill it. The beauty about prophecy is we really have to make it happen. You know, generally it's God's promise of what he will do in and with us and through us. So the joy of journaling, I cannot stress that enough. The power of recording little prophetic words we have, or big ones, and writing them down and praying through them and waiting on God and saying, God, is there more you want to give to us? out of that, is all adding to the write it down on the tablet. Um, and then at a community level, God gives us little insights of what He's going to do with us, and we point everything towards that end, knowing that it's He who's going to do it. So we're going to look at that passage in about three weeks' time, I think, and I'll hopefully do greater justice than what I've done tonight. One more, last one. Thanks, Oksana. Yeah, when you shared about having that personal burden and feeling it as a burden and something that's uplifting, yeah. thanks for even being honest about your experience. Sure. Sometimes you feel like it is really heavy and yes. overwhelming. And, and I'm curious if you have found practices or, or things that have been helpful for you in seasons over time, as long as you've even been a pastor, that have been helpful in the seasons where you feel like the burden is too yes. overwhelming. Thank you. Thank you. That's a great one. My, my love, you can jump into. This is our final little moment here. You know, Oksana, I think 
for me, firstly, it's understanding that dual tension. I didn't see it for many years. I mean, I almost want to whisper under my breath many decades. I didn't understand that we live in the tension of the burden and the uplifting. We live in that. Because that will allow me to handle the moments of darkness way better because they are the moments of, of uh, being uplifted. I think, honestly, Ox, the, my devotion, my daily time with Jesus has been my number one redeemer. Honestly, it has. It's just kept me in His presence every day. I cannot stress it enough. I know that many of you go to bed super late and you struggle to get out of bed in the morning and you play video games till 2 o'clock. You will never have the beauty and the wonder of an intimate time with your heavenly Father who speaks, who coaches, who encourages, who rebukes. And I would say that is my number one reality because I always want to be son before I'm pastor. I want to be son before I'm husband, before I'm father, and before I'm pastor. But if I don't position myself as a son, something else is going to take that place. Something else is going to be my number one go-to thing. And I want to know my number. So if I have, which I do have, a few days for whatever reason, I don't have a devotion. I'm traveling, or I didn't sleep well, or I've got an early morning Zoom, and, and I don't have that. I feel it in me. Honestly, it sounds a bit crazy. But I feel it. You know when, when you've had like five days of in and outs? You think, dang, I just want some salad and vegetables. No, I know you all feel that way. Um, and that's the same. When I've had a few days and I just feel, ah, oh, you know, it's just not a cool thing. So number one is my devotion. Number two is to encourage myself with the prophetic words that God has spoken over me. And there aren't many. Normally we'll have three to five really anchoring words. Jeremiah 1 is one of them for me. And I just go back to that over and over, and I read it, and I pray it. And Lord, what am I not seeing? Help me see. Help me understand. Or particularly on the burden side, it's too heavy. It's too heavy. I mean, Sam won't even know wherever Sam was. We were sitting in a, in a staff meeting the other day, and we were going through 1 Peter, and I did happen to have the difficult passages that were a little bit heavier. And she said, wow, it's been quite heavy recently. Now, you see, that feeds into my burden. Now, what do I want to? I want to be uplifting. I want, to, I want, I want the feel-good factor. But that's not my gifting. My gifting is both burden and uplifting. And I've got to live comfortably with both. I can't just want the one. I've got to be able to do the both. So I go secondly to my um, uh, prophetic words, and I just reread them. I just meditate on them, reflect on them. It's Psalm 1. It's reflecting on the Word of God. Uh, and and there's, there's, there's life there. There's fruit. Thirdly, there are those I love and trust that I do reflect this with. Uh, sometimes, to be brutally honest, I, I want a cheerleader. I do want someone to say, you can do this. Come on, Chris. You got this. Sometimes it's Meryl. Sometimes my kids. Sometimes some of you come and just say that. You don't know. You think, oh, this bold, courageous guy behind the microphone. You don't know the fragile me. The hurting me. The, oh, that didn't really go well, did it, me? So sometimes we do need to go to those who love us, we trust and care for, who speak honestly. I don't want people who will always say, oh, that was outstanding. Because as someone said, if everything's outstanding, nothing ever is. I want those who say to me, no, yeah, it wasn't your best, it wasn't really good. Why did you say that? That was unnecessary. So we, we need those around us who are able to speak into uh, us, but from a prophetic point of view. Are you with me? So those are things that come to mind, Oksana. I hope that helps. All right. Well, our time is gone. I hope this was okay. I just thought, you know what? Sometimes we can just kind of do the thing, hit the clock, and then go home. And I thought, no, I want a little bit of interaction and some conversation. Not every week, but as the, as the situation lends itself. One last thing. Can I encourage you to start taking notes? Just psychologically, we absorb a lot more what we write and not just what we hear. But I think in a prophetic series, God is going to drop little prophetic pearls on our laps. 
And unless we record them, you don't have to take all the notes of everything I preach, but, or others preach, but I think there are going to be things that you need to go home and say, oh, I need to remember that. Tomorrow morning when you open your scriptures, say, okay, God, you said this. What do you mean by that? And we just dig in a little bit deeper around some of those ideas. Does that make sense to you? And so I want to encourage you, bring some notes on your phone. I don't know how you take notes on a phone, but find something that will just give you meditation material this week to reflect on what is it that God is saying to us. All right? Stand together. We're going to pray. Now, there will be some of the leaders around. If you do want prayer afterwards, uh, Tyler and Haley, Joe and Shelley and Dan and Sue, I mean, there are leaders here who would love to pray with you. But I purposefully did not kind of land in E minor with the lights going down and come up to the front. I purposefully didn't land it there uh, because I wanted to end where we were. But, my love, would you mind praying for us? Uh, where's the mic, Ty? Thank you. Fathers, your psalm says that um, you are in the company of the righteous. And I want to thank you, God, that you are with us that you are present, that you are in this place as we gather and in each and every one of our hearts, God. Thank you that you are a God who is near and a God who, um, as Chronicle tells us, your eyes roam throughout the earth seeking those whose hearts are fully turned towards you. And Father, may this series of, of Habakkuk, may it turn our eyes fully towards you, Lord. May we gaze upon who you are in a more in-depth way, God. May we sit anticipating, Lord, you speaking and you speaking to us personally. May we be diligent with our own study and meditation and, as Chris said, to bring, you know, a pen and paper and to think about these things. When we wake up in the morning on our beds, God, may we be found in your word, May we be found in your presence, God. I want to thank you for this beautiful group of people. I pray that as we go, we would go in the strength and grace of our God. We would go with you, our Father. We would go with Jesus Christ, you, our Savior, um, the one who redeems each and every one of us, God. May we go with you, Holy Spirit, our Comforter, who walks alongside us. In your wonderful name, amen. amen.